0: This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. It's good to see you. I've been spending a lot of time on the north end of uh, of campus teaching classes and such, so I've missed out on some of what's going on in the morning time here for, for Redemption Tempe, unless you've been in one of those classes. And it's good to see your faces, 9.30. You know, you're the committed ones who wake up so early at 9.30 in the morning and get here, but it is really good to be with you. I get the privilege of leading us through this um, important section as we continue in our, our, our series through the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. And uh, before, before we dive in, if you need a Bible, would you go ahead and raise your hand and someone on the aisle will come and hand a Bible to you. Uh, you know, Ricardo tells me when I, when I get up here, I need to share some stories about my life, kinda of let you know who I am a little bit. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit to start off about some of the, the crazy games I played as a kid, and then I'm gonna welcome you into one of those games. See, I, I lived in a house where there, were, there was an apartment where there was my mom and at various times up to six teenage boys all living together. And, and you know, some, sometimes preteen and teenage boys, well, the, the thing with our situation, we had two bedrooms, so we didn't have a lot of stuff. We had to get rid of a lot of stuff. But the other thing about it was, is we would always lose or break any sort of toy or ball or anything that we had. So we were the kids who, like, had to figure out how to entertain ourselves, especially as younger kids when our toys would break because we'd, like, use them to bash each other's heads with them and those sorts of things. So we came up with a few games that would entertain us for hours. One of them was called, and maybe you've played these games growing up too, one of them was called, That's My Car. Anyone play that game? Where you pick five cars or 10 cars or seven cars, and then you sit on the road, and then the seventh car that comes, that's, that's your car. So it could either be like a Pinto or a Lamborghini or something, and if the Pinto and Lamborghini were next to each other, you were rooting for the Lamborghini to, to pass it, that, that's, that's my car. You can play it when you go home, it's really fun. Um, <laughs> The other game that we played a lot, and I'm sure many of you played this as kids, was the game of would you rather, or uh, it's this big either or game where you give each other ridiculous scenarios like would you rather eat a scorpion or have needles in your eyes or something crazy like that, or would you rather talk like the Micro Machine Man or Shaquille O'Neal or something. Those were the games that that we played growing up and I'm going to play one of those ridiculous games with you, and it's going to need your participation. I'm going to need you to raise your hand on would you rather do this or would you rather do that. But first, let me uh, set up the scenario. Imagine that you go on a vacation. You're going to this obscure town. You don't know much about it, but you know it's a little weird. You get there, and you're about to rent a car, and you get into the rental car facility, And the person at the desk asks you, would you like a car with a brake pedal or a gas pedal? You're like, no, I'll take both. And he said, nope, it's either or. Brake pedal or gas pedal. You choose. We have both. Who here would choose the gas? Crazy dangerous people. (laughs) Who here would choose the brake? You're living too safe. (laughs) Now, imagine you go to a bed and breakfast. You know, that's where you're going to stay and you're, you're at the bed and breakfast, and you get to the front counter, and they say, would you like a bed or breakfast? And they say, wait a minute, I thought this was a bed and breakfast. They said, no, this is a bed or breakfast. You get to choose. You can either have breakfast, and then you need to sleep outside, or you can sleep in the bedroom, but you can't have anything to eat. Who would choose the bed? Who would choose the breakfast? All right. And then, and then later that day, you go to a, a restaurant, Chinese food restaurant, and you say, I'll take the sweet and sour chicken. They said, nope, in this town we do sweet or sour chicken, your choice. Who would choose sweet? Who would choose sour? Can you imagine how nasty that would be? Sour chicken, just lemon in your mouth. And then there's, and then uh, you need to call the police. And when you call the police for, for some reason, you have to press one or two on a choice that they have. Do you want police that protect or serve? They don't protect and serve, but you have very accommodating police that really will serve you, or just really mean p- police who will come in and protect you but are gonna beat everything up. So who would take the police that protect? How about the ones that would serve, that would like offer you risotto when they got there or something? <laughs> All right, final one, final one. As you're leaving this vacation, someone says to you this ridiculous phrase that I've heard over and over again, and I never understood it as a kid. seems like such a silly saying, the the saying of, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like, have you ever known anyone who's had a cake, committed to that cake, holds it around, but never eats it? or anyone who ate a cake without first having it at some point. So who would like to have a cake versus eating a cake? Have a cake? Why? (laughs) (laughs) Eat a cake. Okay, there you go. These are obviously ridiculous scenarios. And they're ridiculous because they are either-or scenarios instead of both-and. We know these things are supposed to be held together as both-and. You need the gas, you need the brakes, you need the sweet and the sour chicken, you need to be able to eat the cake that you have. And it's silly because it's either-or instead of both-and. And as we look at this text today, we're going to look that, at Jesus' mission and what he's doing, and it's a both-and mission. But we live in a society that for some reason, I think I read somewhere that it's actually connected to Aristotle in some way, that we like to rank things above each other in Western society. We choose either or. And we live, And if you turn on the TV and you, you look at public discourse, you'll see that they'll give you either or options. You can either care about systemic injustice or individual responsibility. Self-care Or self-sacrifice you can care about teen moms or unborn babies you take a personality test and it says you're either a thinker or a feeler you're either just like laughing and crying all the time or you're just like a robot but it says you're a thinker or a feeler you go to the store and basically the cuisines that people are offering you are either that you are a vegan or you're Ron Swanson you eat like Steaks with two hamburger patties on the outside. Modern medicine or traditional medicine. Regulation or freedom. Efficiency or artistry. A strong economy or a healthy environment. We live in a either-or world and the pressures of society are to make us shape everything and put everything into either-or categories. And while we live in an either or society, Jesus bursts into the world with a both and kingdom. You see, he is full of grace and truth. He is fully God and fully man. His kingdom right now is already and not yet. He is merciful and just. He's the most glorious who's ever lived and the most humble that's ever walked the earth. And we are saved by his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now don't get me wrong, there are some either-or things. Jesus is either Lord or he's not. Things are true or they're not. And, and there are things that are right or wrong. But at, ultimately, Jesus' kingdom and his mission what we see from Genesis to Revelation is that his mission is so expansive and covers all things that you could walk out into the world and start looking at stuff. You can see groups of people together and communities, and you say the mission includes and that as well. And you can see the buildings and the towers and work, and that is a part of his mission. And his mission is to redeem and to reconcile all things, families, families, Communities, structures, systems, spiritual realm, physical realm. Colossians 1.19 phrases the mission of God in a succinct and beautiful way. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Whether things on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And as Jesus bursts into the world that we see in Mark, this fast-moving gospel, and he says the time is fulfilled in Mark 1.15, and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, we see Jesus pushing fast forward on the mission of God that includes all things. But the world is very complicated, and we tend to want to truncate and minimize things and minimize the mission of God into either evangelism, or justice, or being contemplative, or being a thinker, or, or um, being a global, or being local. But Jesus is the both and savior, and his mission is a both and mission. So if there's anything I want you to walk away with today, to to hold close, to chew and savor, to put in your pocket and carry with you. It is three letters that are crucial to your theology and missiology. It's the word and. And as we do that, I want to make two main points. One, that Jesus' mission includes the near and the far. And two, that Jesus' mission includes words and works. But before I get into those points, I just want to lay the foundation by walking us through the passage and explaining what's going on. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and uh, open up to Mark 3, and we're going to start with verse 7 and 8. It says, Jesus withdrew. Uh, that, That word there really does have a connotation of retreat and solitude. He's pulling away, and it says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. See, the passage we're looking at today is probably the height of Jesus' popularity. People heard about him from miles around and they came to see him, to hear the words that he was saying, uh, saying, to see him heal people, to cast out demons. There were people who were coming who had serious problems, who were in pain and they were coming to see Jesus and he's so popular that he can barely move around. You can imagine different dialects because people are coming from hundreds of miles away, different languages being spoken, chaos, people over here talking about how Jesus healed one person, other people over here trying to talk about the things that Jesus had said, and they're intrigued by Jesus. This is the height of his popularity, and he's proclaiming the kingdom and healing, and it's just utter chaos. And then we get to uh, verse 9, and it says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I mean, can you imagine... The crowds being so thick that it's like Black Friday times 10 to see Jesus. To them, you know, they don't have a full understanding of who he is yet. He's like kind of a cross between Jay-Z and like a well-known doctor because some are coming to get healed, some are coming because he's famous. And they're coming and the the crowds are so heavy that they're saying it's almost crushing Jesus. He's healing people, but he's almost being crushed by the crowds. And he, bas- and he tells his disciples, he says, get the boat ready. Basically, keep the car running because these people are crazy. We got to get out of here eventually. And you see that Jesus is actually trying to get away because he has something very important that he's doing. And he, he eventually, he, he does get away with his disciples. The, the other thing that's interesting and in noticing here, can you imagine the chaos of everywhere you go, these demons who are overwhelmed by the authority and power of Jesus, that even though they want to oppose him, they're crying out that he is the son of God. And then it's all, I find it always interesting that Jesus is like walking around and the demons are like, He's, you're the son of God. And Jesus is like, shut up. He's like shutting him down everywhere he goes because this is not his time yet in his mission to make all these things fully known. And then we get to verse 13 through 15. It says, and he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And he came to them, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. In the midst of all of this chaos, Jesus withdraws to a mountain. He takes these 12, he picks 12 people out of these, These crowds, all of these folks were were following Jesus. Some were closer than others. But he picks 12 that he's going to appoint and commission to be with him as he shapes them and trains them and then sends them out to the ends of the earth to bring the gospel. And he's giving them a a power to to preach and to cast out demons. And what's interesting is that he chooses 12. 12 is a significant number because God built his unique people, the people of God out of the 12 tribes of Israel. And many commentators are saying that what Jesus is doing is very similar here. He's saying, this is the foundation. These are the 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel that I'm going to create this new people, Jews and Gentiles from. These 12 people. And they're on a mountain. All throughout the Old Testament, mountains were places of significant revelation and Jesus is revealing to, him, to them his mission and what they will be doing for their time. Uh, so they're on the mountain. And then verses 13 through 21. I'm not going to read them. I'm going to summarize them to you. So G- Jesus, while he's up there on the mountain, he continues to name All of the disciples, he mentions them by name and calls them. He even calls James and John the Sons of Thunder. And commentators don't know why he calls them the Sons of Thunder. But that's the coolest nickname for a disciple. They must have been like the WWF like disciples or something like that. Or they had like a really lame band, the Sons of Thunder or something. I don't know. But he names all of these people. And uh, then they get back. They get back to to the shore, and the crowds find him again. And the crowds are so intense and are coming after Jesus that the disciples can't even eat a meal. They can't even sit down and have some food. And Jesus' family, his own family, is basically annoyed. They're looking at him and saying, you know, he's out of his mind. What's the deal with him? And so I just want you to feel what's happening in this situation. Chaos all around. Demons shouting at you. Like we talked about last week, there are Pharisees and scribes that are, and, and, and Herodians that have death threats against you. People are being healed left and right who had been in significant pain. Languages and dialects and confusion. And in the midst of all of this, family tension. is Jesus' own family, We're seeing him heal people, but they're saying he's out of his mind. And if we look closely at what's happening in this passage, I think we see the holistic, broad, and comprehensive nature of his mission. And so I'm gonna start with the first point. The point that Jesus' mission includes the near and the far. It includes the near and the far. See, we live in a day when people take a lot of pride on location. They take pride in place sometimes global people sometimes local people but a lot of times someone will say that they're, they're, they take identity and pride from being from san francisco or roosevelt row or some cool hip city people, people sorry if you're from yuma but people from yuma you usually aren't throwing that out there too much <laughs> but people like to say that they are from a a cool place, but also people like to talk about where they've been in the world. They're very global people. They like the, the hashtags about various causes, and they go overseas, and they have a lot of stamps in their passport. And Jesus, in his mission, is making it very clear that the gospel includes both the near and the far, the local and the global. Well, where do we see that? We see that by the word choice of Mark in verses 8 or 7 and 8. It says it's talking about all the people who had come to see Jesus and they had literally come from hundreds of miles and from right in that very community. He mentions several places specifically. One would be so he mentions Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. These were <clears throat> primarily Jewish places. People who had read the Bible, they knew that a Messiah was coming. It was local you have urban like Jerusalem. You have suburban like uh, Galilee. You have the, 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 the local, the gospel was putting roots in locally. Jesus was bringing the kingdom locally. And then you have this place Edomia, which is kind of in between. It was about half Jewish city, but half a Gentile city. People who hadn't heard about Yahweh or people didn't know Yahweh and worship him, the one true God. And then it says something very interesting. It says, beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. These were almost exclusively Gentile places. Gentiles were non Jewish people who didn't worship Yahweh. They didn't worship this God. They, he's basically saying they're coming from all over. And typically, the gospel would be excluded from these people. That, 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 that. The, the structures and systems of Jewish society would say, we have the religion, it's for our ethnicity, not for yours. But what's happening here is Mark is making very clear that you know that people from way over beyond the Jordan and Tyre and Sidon are involved with this thing. It is global and it is local. And globally, what's happening is this this passage, him specifically naming those places, is is essentially anticipating the coming of the Messiah and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, which it says throughout the entire Bible, throughout the Old Testament. I challenge you to find a book of the Bible where it doesn't have at least some theme of the gospel going to the, to the Gentiles. And one passage that comes to mind that encapsulates this in Isaiah 49.6, in, in verse 5, the The verse before that, it says that that the suffering servant's gonna, gonna come for Israel and for the people who are local. But in verse six, it goes global too. It says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now, think about that. It's saying it is too light a thing. This gospel is too magnificent, too amazing for it only to be this local thing that just stays with us. It, is, it must go to the ends of the earth. It must go to all the places. And Mark is making it clear that this is a local and a global mission. When it comes to place, all of it matters to Jesus. It is God's plan to extend the good news to the ends of the earth. He's the sovereign king over powerful cities like New York and London and Dubai. But also, as Jesus suffered on the hill of Golgotha, he suffered for the joy of those rural forgotten in the Appalachian Mountains and in the hills of Kashmir, India. He scatters the seed of the gospel in plantations in Indonesia, on the sidewalks of Maricopa suburbs, and along the paths of Bedouin tribes that we've never seen before. His mission is local and global, and global. But we have a tendency to either be a localist or a globalist. This world is too complex, and we try to make it easy to handle, so we shrink it to one or the other. We have the globalists. The globalists, probably many people in here who say, who emphasize, yes, the gospel needs to go over there. We need to support missionaries. We need to go overseas. We need to end uh, sex trafficking overseas. And you know all that's going on in the world, but are disengaged with what's happening in your very area. And oftentimes, we use the global as an escape from the local. That life is too hard and complex here, That it's easy to imagine an exciting adventure on the other side. So we minimize the local and elevate the global. But then we have the opposite too. And frankly, I think right now, this is more where we're at. Um, Because on the other hand, we have the localists. Many of us who've been captured by the call to love the city, to be where we are, to seek the shalom of the city, so we engage our occupations, our neighborhoods, and our affinities for the glory of God and the neighbor. And we're, but we're tempted to minimize it to just that and say that God doesn't have a global mission. Because you know what? There are some scary things going on in the world. We don't understand these complex global economies and who the people are who are doing horrible things in malls in Kenya. We don't understand what's going on with ISIS, and frankly, we think that we can hide from ISIS in farmers markets and cartel. We think if we immerse ourselves and put our heads in the sand, that we don't have to care about these global realities. But to be a part of Jesus' mission is both and. And often we're getting our identity from either being local or global. But what Jesus does is when he pulls the disciples aside and he names them and commissions them, he is saying that he is the one giving them their identity, not the place where they are. Some say I'm a San Francisco person or I'm a Morocco person. But the reality is you are a Jesus person. It's not about living in the Roosevelt District, or Rwanda, or Phoenix, or France, or South Scottsdale, or South Sudan. It's about living with Jesus, and if you get your identity from him, you can bring the identity of the good news to any of those places. You get your identity from Jesus and bring it to the various places in the earth, global and local. One of the best examples of that that I know is someone who goes to the church who was actually baptized here last week, He's been a mentor of mine for, for many years, and his name is Mark. See, he has a passion to spread the good news to the ends of the earth. He ended up living in Japan for a while. And he was an English teacher, and him and his family, they, they bore witness there, and they, they had this deep conviction that the gospel must go far. But they also came back to Tempe. But they engaged in the global realities in Tempe. Mark started working at ASU and doing excellent work there and as he was doing that he was able to engage with people from places like saudi arabia and india and china he traveled all over the world and he did his work in a winsome way that people saw people that that he's unique he does his work in that very winsome way but people also ask him about jesus often and i've seen him so winsomely articulate to the good news to someone from Iraq who's been coming uh, to America and to many people who've who've come to America. And if anyone has an excuse to just say, hey, you just focus on global stuff because you're good at it and God's clearly given you a passion, it would be him. But also at the same time, he probably knows more about Tempe than almost anyone I know. He, he sees redemptive analogies and state seals. Like he rides around on his bike and prays for the various aspects of town. And he knows the issues that we have going on here. He knows his neighbors. And, and he knows the place where he's at. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we know that if you sink your roots deep, your branches can be wide. That's the way plant, plants work, by the way. Trees, if you have deep and broad roots, you'll have broad branches as well and the mission is about being deeply rooted in a place but also having broad branches that extend and bear fruit as far as they can go. And so if, if, if you need to, if you want to grow deep, deeper in your global heart uh, there 's a, a prayer meeting that Mark is actually starting that is here at the church it 's the third Tuesday of every month, and you can come find me and i 'll give you information. If you want to need to grow deep in your local connection we 've got something called an all of life tour coming up, and I would encourage you to look online about that. But that brings us to the second point: that jesus 's mission includes words and works so it 's global and local, but it includes words and works. Jesus specifically, when he calls his disciples together, gives them the commission to preach the gospel with words and to alleviate some of the brokenness in the world. He calls them to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to free people from demonic oppression, and to announce the good news. If you look in verse 14 and 15, it says, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. That word apostle is where we get like our our word Uh, postal, like post office. It has this idea of being sent and being a sent one, the carrier of a message. And it says, so that they might be with him, relationally being with Jesus, but also that he might send them to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And what we see here is a weight in the verbal proclamation of the gospel. And then also through this passage and the passages that follow where Jesus tells them to heal, we see the commission to alleviate some of the suffering in the world. We see words and works, good news and good works together and. And we see those in multiple places throughout scripture. Romans 10 tells us of the importance of speaking the good news and preaching It says in verse 14, And how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Now, this may be a little too much information, but because of like football and you know, running outside without shoes on, I've got some mangled toes. Like my feet look in bad shape. But I have beautiful feet when these mangled toes are used to carry me to someone and preach the good news. Because God has chosen, has ordained that people come to know him through hearing the verbal proclamation of the gospel from believers. But it also calls us to good works Titus, all through the book of Titus, there's this this urgency to do good works. And in verse 14, in Titus 3.14 it says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So it says to devote, devote themselves to good works. So words and works, right? Both and, preaching and doing but we tend to be people who want to do, be either or people. We want to be evangelist people, or we want to be justice people, or something like that. What is the, what is the evangelist person like? This is the person who's always talking about Jesus you you can you can make reference to like the cardinals having a bad season and he'll pull Ryan Lindley in as, as a as a as a metaphor for the gospel and how horrible Ryan Lindley was as a quarterback for the cardinals and we are all sinners just like Ryan Lindley is a horrible quarterback this person you just watch out for him the good news they can't help but keep the good news in and that should be commended not mocked in the church however this person also is prone to say Things with a little moxie to say things like, you know what, you go ahead and give sandwiches out to the poor. But what do people really need, salvation or a sandwich, right? Or they'll say something like, yeah, it's fine to relieve temporary suffering in this world. But what's really important is to alleviate eternal suffering. Now, I think that that logic, it makes sense at first, but it is a little flawed. Here's why it's flawed. It's flawed because it assumes that we as humans are the ones who alleviate eternal suffering. And we are not. Jesus is. He's the only one who does, and it's through faith in him that eternal suffering is alleviated. We get the privilege of announcing and sharing the good news with others. And we obey that command like many of the other commands to feed the poor and to care for your children and to engage the work of your hands for his glory. But then you get the justice people. You know the justice people. They got all the bracelets going up and down their arm for the various causes. They got the, the hashtags, you know, a hashtag, end it now, whether it's like poverty or slavery, slavery or something like that. But they love the causes. and they're they're great, and they should, and they're tangibly meeting people's needs, and you see a demonstration of the gospel in their life, but they tend to say things with a flawed logic as well. They say, they tend to misquote Francis of Assisi and say, preach the gospel, and only when necessary, use words. That's nonsensical, the way that it's being used there, because in order for someone to hear the gospel, they need words, and there's one exception. Like if you're a really good mime or you know sign language, then that applies. But I don't think that's what Assisi was talking about. But also they tend to say, hey, don't preach at people, just love people, right? And that sounds really good. That kind of like makes you feel warm and fuzzy. And I don't think we should preach at people. The Bible makes it very clear that we are to, to share the good news with gentleness and respect. But that is a flawed logic as well to say that love and sharing the gospel are mutually exclusive? No. To tell someone about the one that created them, who loves them, who died for them to redeem them and reconcile them with the Father, that, to tell them that is an extremely loving thing. So evangelism and love are not mutually exclusive. But we are the, the both and people. The church should be the both and church, near and far, good news and good works. One guy who's a part of this church who exemplifies that well is a guy named John Crawford. He cuts hair for a living. In Genesis uh, 2.15, you know, it says uh, that that God put Adam in the garden to tend it and to keep it. And you get good theology from work there, of work there. That God has put us in this world to be gardeners and to cultivate his world. And John says, my part of the garden are the little hairs on your head. (laughs) And I'm going to tend them and keep them well for the glory of God. He's got a rich theology of work. He's a servant to others. He gives us time. He gives us money. His life is filled with good works that just just ooze of the gospel. But also, I have met so many people who have come to know Jesus Through sitting at his chair, getting a haircut, and hearing the good news winsomely, gently, wisely articulated from his mouth as he works. Both and. So those are the two points. Jesus' mission includes the near and the far. Jesus' mission includes words and works. And. And. So let's be a church. Church that prays over every inch of the city and every inch of the global map that we put in our pocket. Let's leave the stamp of the gospel in every industry and let's put some stamps in our passports as we go to the places that people have forgotten about. Let's spend time with the homeless and the sick and the CEOs. Let us sit next to uh, the, the suffering by their bedtime by their bedside, and care for those with special needs. And as we do it, let's winsomely preach the gospel and talk about this Jesus that we've come to know. And I know what your objection might be. I know what some of you are feeling right now, because I feel it too. And I want to close with this. As some of you are saying, Jim, I hear and quite a bit. I go to work and my boss is saying, do this and do this and do this. I get on the news and I watch the health channel and they're saying, I gotta do you know, this, these calisthenics and these vitamins and only eat kale and do all that. You get it on the parenting blogs, especially the mommy blogs that can be vicious. They're telling you all the things that you must do to not ruin your tri- child and, 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 and. And this is not the same thing. Because ultimately, I'm gonna encourage you in these, these two quick ways. One is that when the and of God's mission is for us as a church, as a body. That we are many small individuals that make up this whole. So we do need to find our gifts and our roles and our distinct areas of emphasis while not devaluing the others. We don't need to remake the, the mission of God in our own image, but do, play our role as a part of a whole body. Steve Garber says to us that we are not great shots across the bow of history, but rather by simple grace, we are hints of hope. And you get enough hints of hope together, and we make a symphony for the world that tells of this great God that we have. And I also want to encourage you that it's not about you and your both and, but it's about the both and of Jesus. This is his mission. He is the one that we draw our source from. And it's only because of his both and that we ourselves are able to be both and. You see, Jonathan Edwards says that there's an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. And that's fancy Puritan language for saying Jesus holds two things that you think would be opposites beautifully together in one person. He is fully God, 100% created everything. He sovereignly upholds everything, but he's fully man. He had blood running through his veins. He is great, and his glory cannot be measured with every scale of measurement from all of history and all time and all over the world, yet he is humble. He washes the feet of the disciples who would betray him. He's full of justice, and he will not let one injustice, one sin go unpunished. But and he's the God of mercy who takes on the full punishment on his very self through the cross for those who believe in him. He's sovereign. He's the ruler over everything. Every square inch is his, yet in his life he was perfectly obedient to the Father. He's full of grace, moving towards those that others wouldn't move towards, yet he is full of truth and that the full revelation of God comes through him. His gospel redeems our souls and our bodies, the world and the the earth and the heavens, the near and the far. He is the bold lion that we should tremble at in his presence, but he's also the meek lamb who died and was slain for our sins. And as we engage in this mission, we need to know that we are walking in the tracks and in the footsteps of this bold lion and this bold lamb. It is his mission, it is his both and, and because of that, we respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is ultimately your words and your works that are good news. We thank you that you are the lion and the lamb. You are greater than we could even comprehend, yet more humble than we could ever comprehend. We thank you for the exhaustive, beautiful, brilliant nature of the gospel that covers all of life. Lord, would you help us find our place in it? Would you help us find the role that we play within your mission while marveling at what you're doing through the other things as well? Would you make us a church that sends out people far and near, rooted and long branches, and loves and adores the good news, the good words of the gospel, and represents them well with good works. In Jesus' name, amen.